This is a Stand Up Labs production, powered by digital media. I'm driving along with two Jewish people on my fender. There's a law in New York State. I sang once for Barbara Streisand, this is a true story, and her eyes crossed the other way. It was... Well, the first thing I do is make them toast my salad. From the writer of Nyeh and the director of Nyeh comes Nyeh. You can have an eight-way suck fest up in your room, but you can't walk barefoot to the casino. I want a lemon Twitter, I want a raspberry puff, I want a honey curl, and a, 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 no, two chocolate, no, one, one, put it back, put it back. I can loosen up. Don't have to be so black all the time. I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day because that means it's going to be up all night. My neck is actually six inches long, completely flaccid. It don't matter about how much you sniff, put it away, sniff the interest. We're going to have to buy more stuff! For this next interview, I had to get up really early in the morning and come all the way uptown, but it was worth it because... uh, there's a friend of mine I uh, first met in 1984 in a comedy club that uh, was running with Colin Quinn called The Paper Moon. And she was so funny and so great and so inventive and so hilarious that uh, when we did the early shows and tried to get audiences, she was on almost every week. Uh, her career's gone through the roof. Her appearances on the show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and then all the voice work she's done in movies. I know you're going to love this interview as much as I did. Let's, let's listen in on Susie Essman. But um, Tom, yeah, just our Tom Cotter said he did Beijing and Shanghai and said they were outstanding. Yeah, so you you don't think of them as 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 the humor people. No. Yeah. But there's a British comic, an Irish comic that I know, Des Bishop, who's moved there to China because he says the community is so good. Oh, really? And also uh, Joe Wong, who I helped get on Letterman, Chinese kid who. You know, you know what's so great about this. We're rolling now, right? Yeah. What's, what's so great about it is that, you know, comedy in, in a totalitarian regime is mm-hmm. the first thing to go because it's so subversive. Right. And to know that there's comedy in these places like Beijing and, and places like that just means that there's an opening for some kind of um, uh, uh, dissent. Right, positivity as positivity well. Positivity, but also for another point of view because dictatorships squash comedy because it's you know like like in Nazi Germany where they have like clowns or jugglers, right. they don't have people that are satirists. They no. can't handle it. And nowadays in Turkey, there's that one kid who's going right. to go to jail because he did comedy and was funny and made fun of the president or whatever they have over there. Right. I'm right. not really sure, but it's it's actually it's it's a freedom for people. Sure. That have been holding it in. It's almost like people who've grown up in religion extremist religion, whether it be Jewish, Catholic, and they're told never to question things. Muslim. And, right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're able to question things, and it's just a freedom that... that Do you know what's interesting, Eddie? You bring that up. I think one of the reasons, because people ask me, I get asked, look, I'm doing this 33 years, I get mm. asked the same questions over and over, and one of them is always, why were there always so many Jewish comedians? And I think one of the reasons is just the issue that you brought up, is that uh, the history uh, in Judaism is to question. That you mm-hmm. read the the Talmud. Yeah, you read the Talmud every morning and you question things. You don't just take whatever the rabbi or the priest or whoever it is says at face value. And I think it was that questioning uh, tradition that kind of informed 
not our generation, but the generation before us that were children of immigrants or sometimes immigrants themselves, not the, actually not the generation, but several generations before <laughs> yeah, us, right. when comedy, when all those great Jewish comedians, whether it was uh, Milton Berle or Jack Myron Benny Cohen. or Myron Cohen or, or Groucho or- Picard, what was her name, first name, Picard? Uh, uh, Molly. A, Molly Picard. Yeah. Who, Pecan. Pecan, who, yeah. Who had the the room in Second Avenue Deli. Right. But I think it was that, that, that why, two reasons why there were so many Jews. One is they were the outsiders looking in. Right. You know, which was a very important thing for comedy. But the other, I think, was the Talmudic tradition of questioning. And also, in addition to that, storytelling. Storytelling, yes. Because uh, over generations, how did you, you know, there was no internet. Right. So people there had wasn't? a pass. Well, there was in one little small town in Jerusalem, <laughs> just outside of Jerusalem. No one knows. It was a very small internet. It was three people, and they would fight. Yeah. <laughs> and only one person would have, you know, be able to do it. But it's just a history of storytelling, so you can teach your children what happened right. before. Well, that's what the Bible is. It's a story that was passed on. You right. Know? And then like the game of telephone, it's changed many, many times by the time it's This is why right. the literal interpretation kills me. It makes me laugh. It's a hilarious. A friend of mine who is a missionary for, uh, you know, Catholic missionary, and she doesn't mean she only does it one way. She probably, she has many kids, so I think she does it more than one missionary way. But she's one of the most <laughs> incredible people in my life. I've known her since seventh grade. And she's incredible. She goes to Cuba and brings clothing and to food and and tries to get these women to have their own backbone and personality. Would they already have it? They just she lets them open it up. Right. But we have a lot of discussions about the Bible, Talmud, and all the different other religions and the first seven days on earth, which is in every book. And she said we were talking about Noah's Ark, and I thought I said, you know, there's only white people really who get to go. Noah and his children. Where are the blacks and the and the you know Asians and all this kind of stuff and and I said how did they get the animals to come from like the penguins from Antarctica right and, right right and she said God can do whatever right. he wants I said well if he can do whatever he wants why don't he just lift the animals off the ground wash away the the crap right. and then lower the animals back down they don't have to leave well you're talking logic yeah there's and, no such thing and then she comes back with. Some pretty good arguments, but I still can't convince well, me. Well, that's the, that's the dinosaurs roamed on the face of the earth with humans argument. Right. Yeah. And the asteroid came down right. and uh, and squashed the, the one internet uh, thing they had in Jerusalem way back then. <laughs> it's all over. Susie Essman is here with me. We started in the middle somewhere, and you have it all on tape. It's I always great. do. Uh, that's the best way to start. <laughs> and uh, what uh, I, here's what I've been doing here, and uh, other people will know, but you didn't know, is... I've done so many podcasts, I'm sure you've done your share, fair share, but we don't really know how people started and how, what their breaks were mm -hmm. and how they did that. And I know, I know what I know about you from our friendship since 1984 right. uh, is, the, is that you're from the Bronx. Originally, you know, but Mount Vernon is where I actually grew up, which is right next to the Bronx. Right, yes. but it was the, one of the first discussions, where are you from, you know, because your accent and, uh, yeah, and yeah. Colin was around and we all had these accents. We were talking about, oh, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm from the Bronx. I remember you said the Bronx. But when we, when did you leave to go to Mount Vernon? How old were oh, you? Oh, when I was a kid. Right. But, you know, you have to understand, geographically, Mount Vernon is right next to the Bronx, so it's the same accent. Right. You know, most people that, that I grew up with in Mount Vernon were Bronx, uh, our parents were from the Bronx. You know, it was Bronx transplants into Mount Vernon, so it's the same accent. It's like people in Brooklyn who moved to Staten Island right. to go Or up. Long Island, or Queens, right. you know, yeah. To, to move it. Yeah, Queens, from Long Island City to Long Island. So I met you, you know, we were just talking about where we're taping this right now, in this room. Upstairs uh, at Stand Up New York. Upstairs at Stand Up New York, but 
I remember this room from 19... I saw it... First time I got on stage was 1983. Mm. It was July 18th, 1983. But who's counting? Uh, You are. Um, (laughs) uh, But then this room was called the 78th Street Theater Lab. And I remember every now and then on Saturday nights they would have shows. And it was a little more cabaret-y than comedy club-y. You you know what I mean? It was a little theater. And I remember... Oh, it must have been 1984... It was before Stand Up New York opened, so it must have been 1984. They opened 86. Okay, so 84, 85. And I just remember, you know, you get a sense memory. I remember when I walked into this room, I remember one night I died a death in this room. Now, you, did died. you live across the street at, the, at that no, time? No, I lived very far away on 73rd in Amsterdam Oh, yeah, at that the, time. the big walk. <laughs> so the, it was the long walk of shame after right. the set. And we were talking about this before we started rolling, is that we remember the sets that we bomb. Much more. Much more. You know, you know, I've been writing also, <clears throat> excuse me, some memoirs, and I've been I wrote a story about my time when I opened for Ray Charles. Uh-huh. And you happened to be there at one of the shows, and if it wasn't for you being there, um, I had Ajita because the audience didn't want a comic. They didn't want me. They didn't want anybody. They right. wanted Ray it's, Charles. It's hard when you're opening for music icons. Yes. I've had that experience. It's very, very difficult. They don't want to hear you. No. And I bombed three out of four shows. Right. But Ray Charles was incredible to me the whole time. He said I was hilarious, and right. he said, fuck those people. And in fact, one of the shows, he yelled at the audience for yelling at me. And said, Where was that? That was on that, that place Tramps. in the 20s. Tramps. Yeah, it was Tramps. the 20th anniversary right. of Tramps. And the last show of all of them, you were in the audience, and you were right near the front, and I just played to you. Right. I just to get that. through. <laughs> get through. It was horrible, horrible set. Um, what, what about the show up here that you remember? What I just remember dying. You know, uh, um, and I, of course, I was a neophyte at the time, you know, and, and, and the thing about stand-up, I, I'll just say the obvious, it's like, you don't know what you're doing, and you have to do it in front of people. You can't yeah. practice, you can't do it in front of the mirror, you can't do it like a scene in the scene class with a friend, you know, like acting class. So you have to do it in front of people, and in the beginning, you you don't have the technique. You know, you just don't have the technique to know how to pull it out when you're not doing well. And you don't know who you are because you never really see yourself. Right, right. Everyone else sees you. You see other comedians and your heroes and you... Well, the the hardest thing is to find find out who you are as a comic. The most difficult thing is to find your voice as a comedian. And it takes years and years and years. You know, I remember Ronnie Shakes, a wonderful comedian who died young of of a heart attack. I remember him saying something... Uh, at a Catch a Rising Story many, many years ago. It takes you five years to at least find your voice mm-hmm. as a comedian. And I remember thinking, oh, it's not going to take me that long. <laughs> I'm going to skip all those. It took me at least 10. Right. At least 10 years to find my voice as a comedian. And I'm still f- trying to find it. Well, that's the key is that it's... You never always, get it. You're, always, it's, it, you're never satisfied. Right. I'm never satisfied. I'm happy. I, I had a good set, but now I got to... And I'm high from that set right. maybe for a day or two if I don't have another will set to do. it last that long for you? It will if I don't have another set. Right, right. That'll but, wash it away. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but it's okay. I, I don't, you know, I learned from Colin Quinn that it's okay to not do well every time. Well, he has an extremely high tolerance for dying. Right. See, he, he's an interesting case because I don't have that tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I'm addicted to killing. Yes. You know, so I'm addicted to those laughs, which has held me back in certain ways. In what way? I think that I'm not as adventurous as I should be sometimes. Because I know, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm so skilled at this point, and I mm-hmm. know how to kill. 
right. that I'll sometimes rely on that. Well, if you're working in the New Jersey Jewish Women's Association, <laughs> which you did yesterday, um, I think it's easy for you to kill in your surroundings. Correct. And you oh, and look, and an event like that, they're paying you a lot of money. Your obligation is to kill. Right. You know, it's different than when you're working in clubs. That, that's a, a thing that people don't understand is like every venue is different and every, you know, we have different agendas every set that we do. When, when you're doing private events... And they're paying you a lot of money. Your obligation is not to experiment with material. Your obligation is to give them your gold and to entertain them. I made that mistake in uh, Delray Beach, Florida. I was supposed to do 45 minutes, and it was the greatest crowd I'd ever worked to in a private party ever. Because you know those can go haywire because yes. everyone's nervous and everyone's it's also afraid. The of, also, venues important in these right. Privates. And this was yeah. one of those high ceiling yeah, yeah. Marriott hotels, and everyone was so nice to me, and the money was ridiculously yeah. fantastic. But they were so good that I decided to experiment. Yeah. Less, and I did an hour and 15 minutes. I would have stuck to 45. They would have loved me. They didn't, couldn't look me in the eye at the end yeah. because yeah. I was having fun playing. Yeah. I'm pissed off and one that was, lady. That was not, well, there's always one. Yeah. There's always one. And I said there's always one. And they were like, they didn't even look at me. They're like, here, take the check. It'll clear. Yeah. Get out of here. Well, that's, that's you know, the venue is, is everything. Mm-hmm. Venue's everything. Yes, it is. And so let's go back to what we were saying, is okay. that being adventurous, and you haven't been, will you do that? Will, will you give yourself a chance to be adventurous, or are you going to put yourself in a situation because now so many millions of people know you and know who you are? Well, that's are the you, double-edged sword. The right. double-edged sword is, of course, look, what every comedian wants uh, is to draw, mm-hmm. is to have your audience come to see you. Yes. And, you know, all those years we did, you know, we were talking before about, you know, on a Saturday night we would do seven sets. Mm-hmm. Nobody believes me when I tell them. <laughs> Eddie, you believe me. Yes, I did eight was the most I did yeah. on a Saturday. And we would jump around. You, you'd figure it out geographically. Yeah. You know, you'd do your Upper East Side clubs, which would be uh, Catch and the comic strip. Then I'd go downtown, do Paper Moon, the Duplex, the, the Cellar. cellar. Uh, there was this this orthodox place. Remember that place, the Comedy Planet? Yes, It was the yes. Dairy Planet. I did it like that, once. It, it was like an orthodox dairy place <laughs> they would have right. on Saturday. Then we would do Green Street, yes. and that, which was a wonderful room. It was room. one of the best and rooms ever. Because it was not a kind, it was a supper club, so you could do White a different, different rhythm in that room. You, I really developed a lot in that room because it was it was not like a Catch a Rising Star where you had to bang out the material, set up, punch, bang, bang, bang. No, uh, you it, followed a jazz person, and that right. jazz, it'd be like... Okay, and now here's a little so comedy. So you could do a little slower rhythm yes. and, and develop material in that room in a different way. And it was classy. Leah, our friend Leah. Who, Leah Sutton. Who, yeah, who ran that place. And Marla Courtney. And they brought in the best, some of the top young talent. They right. knew young talent, whether we were good or not. They knew that we fit the room. They Leah were really still smart. has her notes from my first audition. What does it say? It said, very good, not ready yet. Something uh-huh. like that. And she was probably well, right. Of course she was right. But um, we, this was the beginning of our, it was the mid 80s. Right. But we used to so run around from club to club, and that's how we made our cash. Yeah. And it was 50 bucks a set. Mm-hmm. Or if, I, if you'd MC at catch, it would be 100. You know, that yeah. was like, ooh. I remember. And I, I, my rent, I remember my rent was 300 bucks a month. So on a, you know, on a Friday and Saturday, one week in a month, I'd make my rent. Yes. You know, and then everything mm. else was just gravy. And I, I always and not made, literally great, right? <laughs> but I always made the decision. I was never, I never went on the road. I always kind of felt like I'd rather make less money and stay in New York, where you could work on your act. Yes. Um, and uh, and you know, on any given night at Catch Comic Strip, there was people in the industry in there to see you. So you got car fare. You, you got make car ten fare. bucks. Seven. 
uh, seven at... At Comic Strip. Right, the Comic Strip. Seven. I, you know, the beauty is, you, I used to plan it so like I would get to Green Street at a certain point in the evening because you'd be fed. Yes. You'd get f- food. Or, or Manny used to feed me. Right, at the cellar. At the that cellar, really you'd get great. fed. So it's like I would plan my set around who was going to feed me, <laughs> and I'd spend more time. You, know, we were you have poor. to. Pl- exactly. Yeah, I remember that well as well. But so what I was saying is, is so, okay, so for years you do that. Mm-hmm. And it's like one comic after another, and every time you get up, you have to win the audience over. And then once you become a name, and you draw, and they're there to see you. So the beauty of that is they know what they're going to get, and they, they're primed, and they're ready to love you. The other side of that is you better deliver. Yes, Because <laughs> yes. they're there to see you, and right. they have an expectation, and you better meet that expectation. Right. They've really planned their whole a month or two in and advance. And they're paying money to come see you. Big money to see yeah. you. Yeah. But then again, how can you be? How can you be adventurous? What you well, you st- you can be. You you have to you have to just know how to slip it in. Um, <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I mean, when they're when you when they're loving you, and ki- you're killing, you have an opportunity to slow down a little bit. Given a good venue, if it's a great comedy right. club, to or slow, a big theater, or big theater, theater's good too. To, theater's different expectation. You could actually do it better in a theater in some ways. Because in a theater, you don't have to have that rat-a-tat-tat laughter. It doesn't mm-hmm. flow, hover in the same way that in a comedy club. Um, so you, you can be adventurous, but you got to bookend it. What about, um, do you wish, like, for the future or now in the future to go to comedy clubs and run around and try stuff out and not always kill to have new, newer material? Or are you just trying them out on stage in these big venues? Where are you right now as far as... What you uh, want right to do, now, I'm up. on hiatus and writing a novel. Very nice. Your second, <laughs> but it's uh, this one. The, the first no, the one first was a, was a was book, a, a memoir, right. kind of you know anecdote. But this is a novel. Mm. This is fiction. Um, you know the thing where I'm at with my stand-up. It, it's interesting because I was just on the phone this morning with Joy Behar, who's as you know my best, best friend, for BFF, um, talking about this. I I I almost feel I feel this way, and I know it's going to change. But right now, I feel as though, not that I have nothing to say. I always have something to say. But I feel as though I've done this form already for 33 years, and it's not exciting me in the way that it used to. Mm, Now, when something changes and I have a new place to be in my head, and I I feel that need that I got to get this out, this material out, and this thing out... Right now, I don't feel that. Did you feel that when you were younger? You felt very like I had to get this out. Very much. I had. I. I felt very much, and I always felt this more than having to make them laugh. I had to communicate with them, mm-hmm. and I think it's what informed me as a comedian. Of you know, I see these young comics, and nine times out of ten, when they ask me advice, and I watch them, and I say to them, "You've got to talk to the," and I don't mean literally talk to the audience, which right. I do, but I don't mean that. I mean, you've got to connect to an audience. You've got to talk to an audience. Because half the time, they look like they're reading cue cards. Yes. You know, they're not talking to somebody. They're not communicating to somebody. And to me, that was always the thing that was the most important to me is, I have to tell you this. Right. I have to That's tell great. you this. <laughs> because it's live experience. Right. If you were on a tape, it's a different story. You still have to communicate with that audience. 
but the audience is there and it's a room and you're creating the ropes um, barrier. You make a barrier out of the room and who's in the back of the room and you include everyone in there. That's right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I remember at Caroline's, um, I, can't, I don't remember this guy's name, but there was a show with Herschel Bernardi on television and when we were kids, yeah. really young kids. And he, his boss was this guy who's been in a thousand commercials. And I only recognized him because he's been in a thousand commercials. He was on that terrific show. And I was at Caroline's one night and I had this, a phenomenal set that I remember. He came up to me afterwards. He says, you never looked my way once. You never looked my way once. I thought you were hilarious, but you never looked my way once. And I was like, okay. And that was a huge night for he, me because I that's decided to look everywhere and, in and the you know, room. And you know what's interesting about that, Eddie, is that my feeling about an audience has always been more than they want to laugh, they want to be taken care of. Mm. They want you to come on stage and take care of them and acknowledge them in some way. And again, I don't mean literally that you have to talk to the audience. I mean that Although you, you do. I do, but that's not what I mean. I and young comedians get confused when I say that. I don't mean talking to them literally. I mean talking to them you know, communicating with them. And, and that guy gave you a very important tip. Yes. You, when, Changed when, my life. When you comic. see, uh, as we all have, and you more than any of us, because all those years you were, you were booking Letterman, you saw a million comedians. Yes. When you see a bad comic and the audience, everybody in the audience starts to feel that discomfort, I think the reason why that is, I've analyzed this, right. is because... That comedian is breaking the contract. Now the audience feels sorry for them, and the audience has to take care of them. What the audience wants is they want to relax and be taken care of. So when the, the, the com comedian that knows what they're doing, you, me, we walk on stage in the first 30 seconds, less, in the first less. 10 seconds, the audience knows, all right, I'm in good hands. It, on television, that's when we would put a set together. It's four and a half minutes, and the, they needed a laugh in the first 10 or 15 seconds. And Mitzi Shore taught me that. She says, get a laugh in the first 10, 15 seconds. Then the audience knows you're funny. Right. They could sit back and go, okay, they're taking and, care and of even me. Even if it's not a laugh, it's, it's an attitude. Mm -hmm. I, like I did Judy Gold's podcast recently. Right. And, and she mentioned how she used to watch me at, at, at uh, Catch a Rising Star, and that I would go into, right before I was going on stage, I would go into this zone. And she said, she learned how I walked on that stage and grabbed that mic. You know, from that second on, I was completely in charge. And I think, especially when you're like, you know, a little, me, I'm 5'2", I'm this little <laughs> petite woman. You know but what I mean? you're like seven foot tall when no, you get I'm on stage. No, but I'm just saying, you know, you, especially in those days, right. you know, I had to make sure that they were, they were going to take me seriously. Yeah, I, I tell young comics too that you're on all the time. When the when they're announcing you and they're doing your intro, right. the audience looks, they know where what part of the room you're be coming from. Zen. I'll actually talk to people on my way up to the stage, like they'll give me this next guy, blah blah blah, and I'll go to some guy, yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, I'll touch yeah. That's him on the part shoulder. Of your yeah, yeah. And to get me onto the stage. But right. Some people they get on the stage, they do some housekeeping, they move the mic stand, they move the chair, they never look at the audience right. and then they come alive. Right. And that it's wasted time. Wasted it's time. wasted time where you're going to grab them. And during that fidget time, the audience is getting uncomfortable. Yeah. They need to know right away that you are in charge. And you call the shots. That's right. All right. Your, your childhood, uh, brothers and sisters? 
I have two sisters and a brother. Mm-hmm. Older brother, older sister, me, little sister. And mm. little sister's much littler. She's, well, I mean, she <laughs> was, she, no, I mean, she was 10 years younger than me. So I was the baby for a long time, mm. is my point. And you had to give that up. Yeah, all of a sudden, up. who's this little piece of shit <laughs> yeah. comes along that's cuter and littler and more adorable than me? I didn't but like that. But not as funny, right? Was she as funny? No, she was. none of them nah. were as funny. <laughs> that's the thing. That's what I want to know. What Was your house a funny house? Was your parents funny? Were your parents funny? Uh, no. Uh, my grandmother was hilarious. What's her name? Millie. Millie. Millie and Izzy Esman. They, they lived on Jerome Avenue in the Bronx, and I spent mm-hmm. a tremendous, right across the street from Yankee Stadium, right. and I spent a tremendous amount of time with them at their house. Uh, a house. Apartment. Yeah, right. At their apartment. And why were you there a lot? Were your parents Because I liked working? them better uh, than my parents, uh. and um, they liked me better than my parents liked me. You know, my parents were always, stop showing off, shut up. You know, they were not ones that were like, oh, look how funny and adorable my mm. daughter is. They were always quiet, 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 uh, you know, not recognizing that maybe I needed a little attention. Right. And my grandmother was the one who I could walk into her house and her face lit up with joy. So I think you only need one person like that. Luckily, I had her because I did not have that at home. And Izzy, was he funny as well? Izzy was Izzy, Izzy was somewhat of an idiot savant. <laughs> um, you know, they said he got hit on the head when he was a kid, and he didn't function very well. He was a janitor. You know, he had various jobs, but he knew every baseball stat. He mm. could rattle it off. You know, he he knew that kind of stuff, but was not a high-functioning kind of guy. He was guy. the rain man of the Bronx. Yes, he, he pretty much was. And Izzy used to, like, comb the Bronx and and find stuff. And then he would wash mm. them like Spalding balls oh, and, yeah. and little charms and things. And then he would wash them, and they'd be wrapped up in tissue paper when I would come over, and he would save them for me. Oh, wow. And I have a box of them now of oh. his, his charms. Worthless, but to me, they're, you know, gold. Uh, of course. Yeah. I have a Spalding uh, ball right, that I've right. saved. All these years. All right. Did, were there comedy albums or comedy programs yes, yes, at, the, at Millie's? The, the, no, not at Millie's. Okay. Um, but my parents, when I was, uh, I was born in 1955, in 1960, my parents bought the 2,000-year-old man mm. album, the Mel Brooks Call Reiner. And that album changed my life. They also had uh, uh, Nichols and May, but at that time, that was a, at five. That they was they a were little... on Ed Sullivan, and I thought they were, I remember thinking they were funny. But you know nothing like the they albums, were, right? Because they they were at five years old. The Nichols and May were a little too sophisticated for yeah. me. But the two thousand year old man, I listened to that over and over and over again. And what's interesting about that is listening to it now, which I've listened to it. I mean, it holds up. It's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. There's no way that I knew what half of those things meant. You know, sexual innuendos. No. But there was something in the rhythm of it and the timing of it that I knew was funny. You know, and I would get up on the kitchen table mm. and do the entire album, both parts, Carl and Mel, in perfect rhythm and timing. And my father, who had horrible timing, thought he was funny, was not funny at all. He would like repeat something from the album, but he would leave a couple of words out and the and it was like nails. Blasphemy. It was like nails on a blackboard to me mm. at five years old. At five years old, I knew it was music to me. Yes. I knew that that rhythm that he was doing was off, and I got the rhythm of it and the timing. And sometimes it, it, later on in years, I'd be on stage, and I would hear myself say something, and it would be in that rhythm. Mm-hmm. That rhythm was so ingrained to me. So that album was huge to me, huge. Yes, and rhythm 
is, you know, math is so involved in comedy. Right. Advanced math, but also the rhythm. I've ad-libbed in the rhythm and said something that was nonsensical or and people will laugh right. really hard because it's they the laugh at the rhythm, yeah, it's the rhythm of what of I said. And I'm going to want to stop the audience and say, you, why what are you, you laughing yeah. at? I know. I've done that too. Yeah. But, but that I, I really think that album really put in my head a certain rhythm of comedy that I just connected to. And I, I've kept. I've kept that rhythm. Did you start thirsting for other comedy, for other albums? Did you see The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or Jack Parr and say and watch well, Jonathan when Winters? I, or? When I was older, when I was older, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in my teen years. I mean, this the, the two thousand year old was when I was five. Okay, and so I never thought about being a comic. By the way, it didn't occur to me. Mm -hmm. I thought about you know I would watch Carol Burnett's show yes. and think I want to do that. You know, comedy sketch stuff. But uh, when I got when I in my teen years, it was Don Rickles on The Tonight Show. Yeah, it was it, it, that was the the killer for me and Jonathan Winters, yeah. both of them. But Jonathan Winters, I didn't connect to in the sense that I could ever do what he did because his brain was so out there in a way that you couldn't even think. But Rickles, I connected to very much so. And and looking back, it's interesting to me. Just not that I'm Rickles esque, but that working the the room kind of a thing is Rickles esque because there's a warmth to him and warmth to you. That you can tell someone in the audience, hey, didn't I fuck you yeah, years yeah, ago? Yeah. And everyone loves it. It's not like, well, who's this crass person right. or who's this person with no care or no love? That's what I, I believe you We kid you because do. we love. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, Rickles was, was huge for me. So from five, when you heard this album, what was the, the next step? You just kept listening to this album and sort of comedy was to the side, but you had this album. Yeah, well, then Did you go I to wanted school to be... and be funny? Yes, and I would always do characters. I would always do impressions of not famous people, teachers, <laughs> friends, parents, you know, that kind of – I always did impressions of people. And, you know, I think at a very young – even before I was five, I think at a very young age, you start to see that you make people laugh and they love you. <laughs> it's incredible. You know, and I, I was a funny kid. I mean, my cousin Jane, I, I, I was maybe, she was maybe 10 years, 12 years older than me. So she took care of me when I was a little girl, when I was, we were in the Bronx. And, and I, she tell, says that I was just, I was a funny little kid. I was just funny. You either have that or you don't. You don't, you can't teach that. And, and you start to see the power of it, not consciously necessarily, but you start to see that, okay, well, I make people laugh and they want to be around me and it makes them happy. And it's 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 a it's a survival thing. Yes, because you, you, I've noticed in life there's a lot of people who make fun of themselves before other people do it in advance. The comic person, the real comic person, is they take the bull by the horns and they go, "Look, this feels good to make people laugh. I'm going for my. I can't wait for my next laugh. It's like a drug that I need." So when you get it when you're three or four or five, or you see how it affects the people around you. I believe that you want you want more. You want to do that. Right. I remember my parents seeing Buddy Hackett, and I had a had a babysitter in Vegas in the hotel room, and uh, they came up laughing, which means they saw the show, they paid the bill, they went up the, through the lobby, up the elevator, and they were still, still laughing. laughing, still and, laughing. And I never saw them happier, ever. That's important. And I that's what sort of got me to say. I want to make my mom laugh like the way she's laughing. Well, that was a thing with me because I had a depressed mother. Mm. And um, and the way that, that people responded to my comedy, she never did. So she was never the person who thought I was funny, 
who I made happy with my comedy. So that was always, you know, when I talk about remembering all the times I died, that's my mother. That audience was my mother, the mm. hardest audience I ever had. And it was always about making her happy. I wanted her to be happy so badly because her misery was just, it, it infected everything, the whole family, her relationship with my father, her relationship with all her children. Mm -hmm. And it was it's miserable to be around an unhappy person. Um, Unless they're unhappy for a real reason, hers there was no real reason. It was just a uh, she was just miserable. She created drama. She created drama, yeah. And so I always wanted to you know cheer her up and make her happy, and I never could. Mm -hmm. Still can't. You know she's still alive. Um, so that was always I think making my mother laugh or bringing some joy to my mother was always an underlying thing that I was never able to get. And oddly enough, still can't get, as you say. No. But you don't think that maybe she's proud of you or she's proud of me. Right. She, she says it to other people. Never says it, but she says it to other people. But she's um, she's still uh, she's not a happy person. Right. She's not a ha she's not proud of me in the sense that I I feel that pride. I don't feel that at all. Right, and you had Millie. She was your... I had, had Millie. Millie, and yeah. that that that. And through the helped. years, other people that you kind of attach yourself to, that you that are that are surrogate people. Right, even to this day, with Joy, you have someone to bounce ideas off right. of. That right. you you know, she's your happiness. She's your sister. Right. She's someone that you can tell your deepest darkest. And secrets I did have to. my siblings. I was always very close with my mm. my brother's very funny yes. in a more kind of different cerebral weird. <laughs> you know, way, play on words kind of a way. But growing up, and my and my older sister always had a great sense of humor. So growing up, there was humor in the house, you know, and we were always putting on plays and writing sketches and doing puppet shows and doing <laughs> all these, all these things that, you know, I used to, I remember one year for Hanukkah, my sister Nora got um, a little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. It must've mm. been six or seven. Well, I took over that. I was Johnny Carson, interviewing yeah. everybody. And, you know, that became... So we had all these creative outlets that we were always doing that were funny. And it, it's... How many channels did we have? We didn't watch TV. No, we had one weird UHF channel and about five other ones. Right, we you had know. And CBS, NBC, ABC, and then the two, like, Channel w -O -R -W -P -I -X. 9. W-O-R-W-P-I-X. And Channel 11. And, and five. Right, and right. It, with the Sunny Fox, the Sunny Fox Wonderama, <laughs> right. yeah. Oh, I watched that show religiously and wanted to be on that show my whole life. Yeah. And I was able. I still remember she made a proper cup of coffee in a copper coffee pot because they used to do the tongue twisters. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. still remember right. that to this day, uh, which is crazy. And for and for me, you know, I never thought I'd be a comedian. I never wanted to be a comedian. I loved comedy, but then you said as you got a little bit older, you started watching maybe the Tonight Show or Ed Sullivan. Is that true? And yes, I mean, I, I remember watching Ed Sullivan, and I loved uh, uh, Ann and Jerry Stiller and Mira. Yes. I loved them, uh, and you know, it's it, it's so touching to me. Like I'm looking at up at the wall right now, and there's Rodney. You know, a picture right, right. of Rodney. It, it's amazing to me that I actually got to know these people and have meals with them, and yes. you know, these people. I mean, Mel Brooks, I talk about the influence. He was on a season of Curb. I hung out with him for an entire season. I was thinking that while you were telling that, that story that, about the that, album. That, that you actually, and, and sometimes your idols disappoint. Not comedy idols. Yeah. 
The comedy idols I've ever had have never disappointed me. Not like Mickey Mantle would disappoint because he was the drunk guy at Correct. the party. Rodney couldn't have been more gracious and loving and kind. Mel, uh, Anne, oh God, I miss Anne Mira. I used to run mm. into her in Fairway yeah. and she would be bitching about, we'd stand at the produce center, you know, <laughs> and she'd be bitching about this and that. And I would always think, are here are people watching Aunt Mira and Susie Essman <laughs> bitching about this one in the, in the middle of melons. The, in the front of the cantaloupes, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, but, comics, I've always looked out for other comics, you know, people say, say to me, oh, comedy's a hard business and everyone's competing. They think competing. it's cutthroat. Yeah, right. it's, it's not. not. I remember Joan Rivers coming here to stand up in New York and I, Judy and I, Judy Gold and I and uh, Rhonda Handsome and somebody else were all on the show. And afterwards, w the four of us comics who were on the show sat with Joan for the rest of the show, the rest of the night. And she was one of us. She didn't. She didn't want to tell her stories only. She wanted right, to hear our right. stories. She, well, we're we're a brotherhood. Yes. I think you know, look. You you called me the other day to come be on this podcast. I hadn't spoken to you in how long? Uh, Five years at least. But it doesn't. It's, it's, I only see you through pictures on Facebook with <laughs> Leah, who's the love of our lives. Right, because I'm not on Facebook. But I'm just. I, it doesn't feel. It's. You know, uh, we yeah. started together. Life is one long day, and I'll see you later in right, the day. Right, exactly. You know, I had started comedy in the late 70s in college. I started in an improv group and a sketch group, and Stephen Wright was our, our friend. And did, did you go to Emerson? Up. I went to Emerson. Right. And uh, Stephen Wright was our friend, and we all decided to try stand-up because he made it look effortless. Right. And it wasn't effortless. Right. And, and I stopped doing stand-up. In 1984, a friend of mine from college said to me, look, I'm working at this place, and they want to do comedy. Will you help me put it together? So the very first week, it was me and Colin Quinn. I met had met Colin, and we started this comedy club called The Paper Moon, right. July 29th, 1984. You right. were talking about dates and so remembering I had been, them. So I had been doing comedy for a about year. a year. Yeah. Right. So what I don't remember is how we first met, because I have the old books of the, the list, and you're almost every other week you were working, well, especially I knew at the Colin. beginning. I knew Colin, because I met Colin... When I first started, passed at uh, the comic strip, Colin was the bartender. Right. And he had not done stand-up yet. He started maybe three months after me, mm -hmm. you know, as did Rock. Chris Rock, That's where yeah. I met Chrissy, right there at, right. in 1984. So, um, so it was probably through Colin. It had to be. Yeah. Because you were on, you and Mario, who I went to college with, and Colin and oh, myself. Oh, it might have been through Mario. No, I don't. I don't I think, think it was through, through Mario. Colin. Yeah, because I was talking to Mario, and uh, and of course, you know, love, love, love the, the Mario. I've known in college, and the power that he had when he was eighteen, nineteen, twenty. I had to bring some comics that never had gotten work at the big clubs at that time, and I was paying actually money out of my pocket. I had a day job. And I paid the comics very well out of my pocket to get people to come to this room in the middle. It was a cute room, middle too. Of, it was a tiny little yeah. room, and we built it just for comics, right. by comics, right. and very theater-like. So you started working there. We met, and <clears throat> you were immediately, you know, a fireball. And this is your first year in. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't recall the exact timing of things. Mm -hmm. I'll just Weirdly enough, I have a weird time. I can remember because the Mets won the World Series in 86. 86 yeah. And I remember that's when stand-up started because Dennis and Leary and uh, Tony V and all of them were here when the Red Sox lost. And I have weird... Were they bitter? Horribly. <laughs> they had put champagne out on the bar because the game, game six was just about to be over. And they were taunting all the New Yorkers at the bar. Yeah. And then the champagne never was opened because the Mets won. There you go. Mm -hmm. um, okay, quick version... 
a quick version. Right. Uh, first time I got on stage was a, a place on Carmine Street called Mostly Magic. They had an open mm. mic night on Tuesday nights. I did that. There were two guys there named Bert Levitt and Paul Herzik. I remember Paul from Comedy U Grant. Of course. And, but this was before Comedy U Grant. And they right. came over to me after that first night I went on. And I never thought I was going to be a comic. Mm. Friends kind of dared me to go on stage, and I had taken a comedy class. Who'd you take it with? Do you remember? Uh, it was at Manhattan Punchline, mm-hmm. and I don't remember the woman's name. But she would give assignments, and I was so I would cut class that day because I was so scared to get up in front of people right. and do the assignment. And finally, there was this guy, and I forgot his name. His name was Richard. I don't remember his last name. And he did comedy for a couple of years at the Improv, and then he was gone. But um, big burly guy with a beard, and he was in the class. We were all out after the class one night, and he said to me, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I do these characters. And he said, well, how about next class if I just kind of interview your characters? Mm. So I thought, okay, I could just improvise it, and I don't have to write it because I was too scared. And we did that, and it did really well. It killed. And I don't know if it killed, but it did well <laughs> enough to make me think, okay. So then those guys in the class were really supportive of me, and they were like, put together five minutes. Well, they told me where all the open mic nights were. So I went to uh, Mostly Magic, mostly magic, and I had five minutes, which I ended up doing in three because right. I was so... Right. Blah, 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 blah. right. And it was just these characters, and Paul Herzik and Bert came up to me afterwards, and they said, we're opening up a comedy club, and we thought you were great. We'd love for you to come work there. I gave them my number, never thought about it, never got on stage again. Hmm. Now, how, how long? That was July. I think it was September they called me. Hi, remember us? We're, we we opened the club. We want you to come down and do 10 minutes. And me, like an idiot, yeah, okay, 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Eddie, that you was, know, it 10 takes minutes. years to write 10 minutes. Exactly, but I didn't know what I was doing. Right. So I wrote 10 minutes. And again, only characters. Fine. Can you come back next week, a, a Thursday night, women comedy night? That's where I met Joy. That's where I mm. met... You know, so many female comedians, uh, Rita Rudner, Susie Sorrow, uh, uh, Carol Liefer, Margaret Smith, um, who else was around? Uh, Beverly Mickens, uh, Leah Krinsky, who's been a writer for Mar for years. And anyway, so they were all there and I was scared to death because they all seemed to know each other and who the hell was I? Long story short... Those guys started putting me on a lot and gave me shitloads of stage This was time. now Comedy U Granted? Behind, no, it was Comedy U at that time. Okay. It was on University and 13th Street. Right. And you so, know Michael Chiklis, the, the actor from yes. The Shield? He was the bartender Oh, was he? Comedy U. I, I need a tissue. Do you yeah. have a tissue? Just because I'm having genre. bad allergies. Um, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I, I had <clears throat> spoken to Paul Herzig uh, years and years later, and he had told me that. And then Michael Chiklis was on Letterman, and I said, yeah, you know, because I re- remembered the guy who was Mike at the bar. Oh, wow. And That's like vaguely coming back to me. Yeah, and I walked, talked to him. He was like, yeah, I worked there. I, it was the greatest job. I saw all these incredible comedians, especially at the beginning of their career. Yeah. It was really great. But and before Comedy U Grand, they had this place Comedy at U University. On 13th. And so they, I worked there for six place. months, I only worked there mm. because they were so supportive and loving and gave me great spots. And uh, then I met all these comedians and uh, Scott Blakeman, this one, that one, right. who basically said, Let me introduce you uh, to the comic strip. Thank you so much. Um, and I went, and after six months, I auditioned. Catch Rising Star would not put me on for anything. Because. I would, didn't pass there. Mm. It was uh, it was comedians running the ship in those days, right. and they didn't pass me. And I only did these characters. And then I kind of realized, okay, if I want to go anywhere, I got to learn how to 
I have to find my voice. Right. So I said to Bert Levitt, can I MC? He was like, you can't MC. You just do characters. I said, let me just try. He gave me that spot. And it was a safe environment. And I remember the first time I was MCing, I was talking to this guy in the audience. I said, so where are you from? And he said, Texas. And I just said, oh. <laughs> you know, I didn't even know how to do I'll it. I'll tell you a quick funny story, Anna, because I want to talk about MCing now that you brought it up. Dave Letterman tell, tells a story of in uh, in Denver. He's working with Leslie Uggams, opening uh-huh. for her, and he had to do like thirty minutes, and then she took a break. They took a break, and she came out. So he, you know, was so nervous. He did his thirty minutes in ten minutes, and he was done. Yeah, he didn't have any material, so yeah. he started working, working the crowd. The audience, yeah. And he said, "So where are you from?" And the guy said, "I'm from Denver," and he said something that didn't really get a laugh. So then he went to somebody else and said, "Where are you from?" And the guy says, "I'm from Denver," and they laughed because he didn't have anything. Right, right. So then he went to one other person. The guy goes, look, I'm from Denver. He's from Denver. She's from Denver. We're all from Denver. We're Do in, your act. We're in Denver, yeah. <laughs> right. And he ran off the stage. Really he ran off the stage. And he tells us, he's told it on, on the show, but it's, it's so important to be able to MC. I've done that most but of my life. But that's something you develop. Right. But how, but how do you develop it? For, you can't develop it unless you just do it. Unless you just do it. Well, and then you that's decide what to do it. Because a lot of comics don't like to MC because it's been put down as the, the you know, you're the worst comic in the show. Well, but that was ne- not the case at Catch Back a Rising then, Star. Yeah. At Catch a Rising Star, it was the best comic that got to MC. In Boston, the headliners emceed the Yeah, shows. and it w- how it always felt to me, because I, I emceed a lot yes. at Catch. I became like the regular MC at Catch for many years. And I, that's how I developed. That's how I found my voice. And that's yes. how I found who I was. And for me, it was always, okay, this is my show, and I'm bringing friends on to entertain you. Yes. You know? And it, it was, whereas in other places, they make the mistake of having, and a good MC is so important because that sets the tone of the show. Yes. It sets the tone. Yeah. So, I, so all right. So then then Lucian passed me at, at the comic strip. And, and I started- What year was that? Do you 1984. Remember? Okay. And so then I started working, and I was working- the paper moon and here and there and duplex it and that that's and then I just after about after about three months of doing stand up I was like okay this is what I was born to do yeah but before that I didn't know I stand up I hadn't been I had never been in a comedy club really once I was in a comedy club I was mm-hmm. at the comedy store in L A actually this is actually an important story okay before I did stand up. I would, you know, I'd watch these people on Ed Sullivan when I was growing up. I'd watch Joan, Alan King, you know, brilliant comedians, but I didn't relate to them because they were doing the, this material, this like jokes. It's not who I was. I like doing characters and right. telling stories. So my cousin, Michael Pressman, my mother's maiden name is Pressman, actually. She's Zora Pressman Essman. Um, <laughs> He is a, a film and television director. I was visiting him. This would be, must have been 1982. Mm-hmm. And he, he was directing a movie at that time with Richard Pryor. So he says, let's go to Comedy Store. Richard Pryor is going to be working out some new material for his next concert. Right. So we go see. I had never been in a comedy club. So imagine, you're never in a comedy club your entire life. The first person you see is the god of all <laughs> yeah. comedians, right. you know, is Pryor. That's so great. And... He's working stuff, and it's, a lot of it is not working. And then other stuff is killing. But he's, he's, you know, workshop, he's working his material. He's workshopping material. Until that moment, I didn't get that that's how it was done. Mm. So here I'm seeing, and he had already had his first album out at that point. And that first album was, not, not the album, the, the concert. Yes. That first concert was the most brilliant of all time. Right. And as kids, it was so, you know, he cursed and he, you know. He was Our everything. parents didn't listen to that kind of stuff. We... 
you he know, was everything. underground. We were all yeah. all us kids. We got together. We'd get in the basement. We'd listen to that album, and and when our parents were gone, so right. that we can hear these words. And he was just incredibly brilliant and funny. He and, was everything. And he did was characters. He was the characters. He told stories. He was he ripped his his heart open. He was vulnerable. He was accessible. He was you know he was just everything that you want to be. And as that's a the thread of every great comedian that I've appreciated over the years. That that vulnerability. Right. That soulfulness. Right. Right. So anyway. So, so I go see Pryor, and that was when I f- so, thought, I always thought you had to have it completely set already, you know, and then you went on stage, and, and it seemed daunting to me because I didn't know how to do that. And I watched him, somebody who I had seen be so brilliant, yes. struggling, and, and, you know, and I was like, oh, that's how it's done. I didn't know. Nobody teaches you, you these know? things. How can you know? No one could know. So that, that so that. Once I finally did get up and do stand up, I didn't want to be a comic. I wanted to be an actress, mm. you know. But then after, but I would take acting class. I was so bored. You were bored so, in acting class. Oh, so bored doing scenes, and you know, I was just bored the shit out of me. And look how that's worked out for you. Well, that, that's different. <laughs> the well, act I do comedic act, you know. Right, I was but doing, you also do voice acting, which I is do, very, which I love. I love. You, you know, your voice is so distinct. We didn't have to say this is Susie Essman ever through this interview, <laughs> and people would know. But that. That's an act. There's so many different kinds of acting, right? And you've really excelled at a few different parts of. But that. I'm not bored by acting now. But I'm talking about when I used to take scene study class, right. you know, and like. But I mean, it's just ironic right. that you were bored, and it could be the teacher. And if you had a bad teacher, you or a bad scene partner, you might not have ever done acting ever in your life. You right. would have turned you off. It, it didn't excite me. Right. But when I started doing stand up, the art form of it was. And it still is. It's it's not exciting me right in this moment <laughs> because I'm just I'm taking a hiatus. Although if anybody hears this, I'm still available for private parties and corporate <laughs> gigs, uh, um, anything that pays. Um, and Australia. But and Australia. But but stand up is as an art form. It's the most fascinating because you never get it. Yeah. You never get it, no matter how good you are. And the best, and we know the best personally. Yes. They just are constantly working at it and constantly finding new things. And and it's a reflection of who you are. And in your life, you're constantly changing. Look, you know, uh, you know, when I met Jimmy, my husband, I met him, what was it, 13 years at 12, 13 years ago? Right. You know, and then all of a sudden I'm raising four kids. Right, because he has four kids and they're all teenagers when when I first met them, they were 10, 12, 14, 15. You know, right. now they're all in their twenties. But um I brought up four teenagers. Well, of course, my material changed. I mean, everything changed after that, you know. So now I'm, you know, 60 years old, and I got grown children, and I'm postmenopausal, and now it's different material. You know, it's just so you, unless you're just stuck in time, which does happen to some people, yes. we've seen that you're constantly changing, and and there's there's new things to talk about. Which is great about comedy compared to music. I mean, you can play, you know, Jumping Jack Flash for right. 40, 50 years. And maybe give it a reggae beat once in a while, but it's not like being by yourself on stage, pouring your heart out, having that vulnerability. I had this argument with my sister recently, who's a musician, and she was talking about how it feels just as bad if you're playing in a club and you're a musician and nobody's listening as when you're a comedian. No, No, it does not. Because when you're a comedian and nobody's listening to you, they're rejecting who you are. Yeah. They're, there's, they're rejecting everything <laughs> about you. In music, you, 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 you could play that in your living room by yourself. It's different. It is. And if you go to a wedding, the band, no one listens to the band right. at the wedding. They could be singing, no one is paying attention, right. and no one would be. Right. Would but get if they're it. not listening to a comedian, it's death. 
isn't it funny that some people think that you can perform at a wedding as a comedian oh, or perform uh, at a bar mitzvah? People have asked yeah. me, no, I always turn come on, that go down. up there, Susie, go no. up there and say a couple of funny lines. Or people will say it at a dinner table. Hey, tell me some of your jokes. Or, and yeah. they don't realize that there's a nonverbal part to it and a verbal part right, to it that, right. that well, people, really works. People don't get this thing, which is why what we were talking about before, why we have this sister brotherhood yes. going, because we're the only ones that understand. You know, part of my friendship with Joy all these years has been that we're the only, not we're the only ones, other comics, but like if I call her up and I say, I'm at this gig, and there's a huge dance floor in yeah. front of the stage, and the audience is really far away. She's going to get why I'm upset about it right. and what it is. Why you'll it... have to jump on the dance floor and move to the front exactly. and change the rhythm, uh, the, f- the sort of structure of the room. Correct. I always say, and then I might be in the dark if I do that. Right, and they won't see your face. It's, it, there's so many. There's so many things in terms of. It. Jimmy said something interesting. Jimmy, my my husband, right. recently, where we were talking about, you know, because I, I still suffer from tremendous stage fright. That's and he doesn't understand it. He's like, "Why? You, you, you're always, you never die." And I'm like, "Yes, you've seen me die a million <laughs> times." And he's like, "No, I haven't seen you die a million times. I've seen you be in bad venues, mm. like when I was on the rooftop in Cannes, in the south of France, at two o'clock in the morning, and there's like house music blaring in the rooftop next to me, and you know, sounds like a perfect uh, it, right. scenario for comedy. Right. <laughs> yeah, but at least the, when you're done, you're in Cannes. That's the and good they part. pay for the trip. We we did a TV show together in England. You remember that years and years ago? Was oh like a, yeah! And uh, it was one where I just flew in for one day, and did the TV show, and then flew back the next day because I had work the the day after. Um, well, what do you think about working internationally? What's that? Well, done I've for worked you? in London a lot. I, I work. Uh, I, I haven't this year, but for several years in a row, I would do a run at the Soho Theater every year. Right, that's right. Um, I remember and that. Uh, they are amazing audiences. In London, I mean, just what do you think makes them amazing? They're really smart. They're very sophisticated. They, um, they, they, they're a little standoffish at first. You have to win them. Yes. And Curb is very big there. Curb your enthusiasm is very big, but you could kind of see it's a very British comedic sensibility in a way, you know, and silly. They're silly. They're very silly um, and smart. And they smart. Like smart they're smart. So, so I do very well there, and and I always have an amazing time there with those audiences. I really enjoy them. I have not worked that much internationally. I know you have. Yes. You've worked like all over the globe. Because the audiences, first of all, it's it. I always need a new challenge because I get bored very easily. Yeah. But going to these other countries, you find out that their education system is much better, uh, that their tolerance for bullshit or drama is, I'm sure it exists, but it's a lot less when you're in Europe. Like, I remember the first time I went to London to do a guest set or open spot, and they said, uh, I gave the guy my intro, and he looked at me like, fuck you. And I was like, what? He thought I was bragging to him about my career. He uh, didn't understand. That's how we do it here. Yeah, but yeah, here we credits. have an intro. He right. said, why set yourself up for failure by telling them how great you are? Right. If you're on the show, you're funny, and just prove it by being funny. But look at this culture we have in this country. This culture, I, I mean, I did The View Monday, and they're talking about uh, black China. Who the fuck is black China? You know, of no course, idea. I come out with I, to me, black China is something that looks good with a white tablecloth. You know, but but it's like I, I don't know who these people are. Right. We have this culture in this country that cares. I don't even want to go into politics. We, that that cares about celebrity in a way that's insane. Yeah, and people and it's look not at about us. content. But you know, in England, their their newspapers are as creepy and as weird as oh uh, as yeah, some they have of the ours. Daily Mail, right? Yeah. 
So there's, there's always that uh, part of the society. But in England, and especially in Ireland, which I love even more I've to work. I've never worked there. I'd love to work there's there. There's a comedy festival in Galway in October. And I'm, I'll say it on the air. I'll you know, talk to the guy. I I've would been love helping to. Him. October's a perfect time for us to go to uh, us. The, I will yeah. not go without my husband. I don't blame it's you. It, Galway is go. one of the greatest cities in the oh, world. Right. We're in. On, guy, on the, the West booker Coast. guy that's friends with Eddie. <laughs> yeah. We're in. <laughs> okay, good. He'll, he'll, he'll be very happy. Curb is big there too. Yes. And I'm sure he... But how do you deal with non-English speaking? All right, Ireland and England, they speak English. So right. they say. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the expats that we get to see. The best gig I ever did in my life, Rich Hall got me in Paris. And I'm like, how is this going to work out? Well, there's expats all over the world. When I worked in Hong Kong, there were expats. It, it, Hong Kong used to be run by the British. Right, right. And then when the Chinese took back over in like 2001, I think it was, the British people were there. They had no English entertainment to speak of. So when they once a month would do this comedy show, they would fight for tickets to see something where people spoke English. Right, and the French, if you're in France, you know, they like like Jerry Lewis and Jacques right. Tati. I always just say, I thought they liked Sherry Lewis all <laughs> right. this time. I, Lamb chop. Yeah, she's fantastic. <laughs> but in the difference is, when I worked in Amsterdam, I worked at Tumler, which was not a club that brought in tourists. It was only the... The uh, Dutch. Only the Dutch. And they had... It was their second language. The first time I, I talk as fast as you do in right. life, and the, I didn't do well the very first night. And the owner took me in the back and got me drunk and because I was so bummed out. And right. I would think, here I am. I have to do a whole week at this place. Right. He said, the problem is, is you talk too fast. These people have to... Ah, you know, English is a second language. Right. Yeah. They have to hear what you say and then, you know... So you have to adjust your rhythm, yes. which, you know, I think is a very important point. I think that one of the one of the most important things to being successful as a comedian, because we both know many people that we started out with and are still doing comedy who are very funny, but they never figured out how to make adjustments. Right. And, and, and every uh, audience, every venue, every, you have to learn how to adjust. That's why I like to watch the, some of the other acts, not to want to watch the whole set but to see how the audience reacts to them right. so i can change know how to adjust. or adjust and one of the things that they taught me in in tumler in amsterdam was to be more nonverbal. and i slowed it down and i and when i said brush my hair i would make the movement with my hand that i was brushing so my you hair you were a mime now and now i was <laughs> i had some words <laughs> i was a mime with a few words and the next night and the next night after that it was fantastic yeah, yeah. so working an audience that needs to uh you know, translate the the words first. That's really tough. But in Paris, I was working to you know Brits and Americans, right, and right. and so internationally, it's like I went to Bangladesh and worked. And in Bangladesh, it was all people who did business internationally. So the English was something that they used all the time and made you do made have it to you know, like working in London because I worked there a lot. You, you do have to make reference changes. Like yeah. there's certain there, there's certain thing you know. The, uh, I guess the the most common is you know. To them, a fag is a cigarette. Right. You know, chips or potato or, or French fry. You know, things like yeah. that. So you do have to do a little homework. Pissed, is yeah. drunk. Right. Right. Knackered. Yeah. You know, like. They, but you do have to do a little bit of your homework just so they get what you're talking about. Because otherwise, it's you want them to understand you. Yeah. It's not pandering. And they want to understand. Yeah. Pandering is something that it's really interesting. Working internationally, I found out how much pandering there is that American comics do compared to the rest of the world. It's like they want applause for no reason. What? Let, hey, let's hear it for the troops. Go, oh. go, like here in America, we'll say that. Now, who 
in the audience doesn't want the troops to do well. Right. So to right. just say that, it's like, fuck you. Yeah, you no, know, I you're getting that. a laugh yeah, off I of the hard that. work of our troops. And there's so much pandering. Hey, how about the old people? They don't get a break. Or let's have a round of applause for coming out tonight, which is very weird because <laughs> people have come out before. They don't really need to applaud their effort. And why are you why are you being applauded for coming out? Yeah. See, I never did yeah. that shit. Yeah. <laughs> I did because it was cliche and I was yeah. just filling in the cliche and I just felt dirty being cliche yeah. after I went in 1989 well, to Europe. It's an interesting thing too that doing stand up that that for me there was there would be this little you know, in, in the early years, when you're t- still trying to find your voice, there would be this little lie that would crawl up my spine that mm. was really, really uncomfortable if I did something like pander or hacky or, you know, it was I had, I had a super ego about my stand-up integrity that was so insanely strict, so strict, that I think it sometimes hindered me. It c- could have because you're in your head about it. But if you have that in your deepest part of your soul and let that happen and just come naturally, I think that would solve that because we all need that sort of you know, police person right. inside of our body to make sure that we don't pander or we don't... Because I've done or, that. Or even steal. Not stealing, but, you know, it, it's, uh, as, it's so weird. Cause as I said that, I looked up at uh, Oliver Sholem, Robin Williams, <laughs> who was not a thief. Gilbert always said, I wouldn't say he's a thief. He's just incredibly absorbent. Yes. And because he he d- just picked up he everything. He was the pampers of comedy. He would just pick up everything from everybody around him yes. and just uh, absorb it and then spit it out. And he wasn't like literally stealing. But, you know, you, you're on stage and the gun's to your head and then something comes out of your mouth and you don't know where it came from. And then later on you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, I maybe heard that from somebody else, but you're not really sure in the moment. And, you know, there's all these kinds of weird things that happen when you're on stage. It's not – you're not consciously trying to to do something, but we all kind of think up the same things a lot of times because we have comic brains. Of and- course. And like you said, we're absorbent. I'm absorbent about – what I see in society, when I start being cliche, which I had been a few different times, that policeman would jump right, up and say, right. stop. And and I think we all have those moments because there are times when you're desperate on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, there are times when you're on stage and it's not working and you're dying and you're just like, you know, you, the, the file in your head is going a million miles. Where should I go now? Should I go to this material? That material? Mm-hmm. And you don't always make a good choice. That's an interesting fact is that we have two sides of our brain and one side is get, is queuing up the next thing you're going right. to do while the other side of your brain is performing. And, and And the interesting thing about it, Eddie, is that when you're doing that, you're performing, you are so... Totally and completely present yes. while you're performing, but that other thing is going on at the same. It has to. Yeah, you're. It's it's like a yellow sheet of uh, my yellow pad that right. I have at home, and I'm going through that. Okay, this is working well. Uh, you know, this is really nice. Now, what do I have to do to segue from here to that? That's why people think in the audience that, and you are essentially making it up as you go along. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain skill in making it look like you're completely making it up as you go along, when really there's other stuff going on there. You're pulling, oh, wait, I could do this bit. And it seems like, oh, you just made that up. But, you know. 
when I was in college, we got to usher for Steve Martin concert at the mm-hmm. Heinz Memorial Auditorium in Boston. It was five shows, and he was one of my heroes. Right. I, I watched The Tonight Show every night, and he was great, half a beard, arrow in his head. It was very silly. It was great. Right. And I watched the show, and I said, this guy is the most genius ad libber I've ever seen in my life. Until you saw the second shows show yeah, and the yeah. third show. And That's I, why I hate when people see me repeatedly, because they know all my tricks. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And I, I, I've i actually prefaced things. Well, you know, you've heard me say this because I feel weird when people yeah. in the audience had seen me before. But, you know, again... Uh, you know, you, you were talking about the Rolling Stones before. You know, people are going to be disappointed if they go to see them and they don't do satisfaction. That's right. So I've had that experience also where people, you didn't do this bit. You didn't do your mother. You didn't do, you know, <laughs> they want the greatest hits. Right. Kinnison, Sam Kinison used to yell out. He says, you know those bits. I want to do something you don't yeah. know. Yeah. Why are you yelling out those bits? Remember it happened to Rodney at Radio City Music Hall where they're yelling out his bits to him. And he's like, look, relax, sit down, shut up. Let me do... My act. He was one of the great ones, Rodney. Incredible. He was, and so nice to young comedians. A, cu- a couple of things. I'm going to keep okay. you a couple of minutes because I want to know. I know about Curb Your Enthusiasm. What a great break that was for right. you. It was the break for you. You knew Larry David from Catch a Rising Star. He was the best comic for me to watch Right. do that. How did he find you and why did he just, because he just called you yes. and said, I want you to um, do the well, show. Well, I knew Larry. You know, I met Larry probably, what, 1985, mm-hmm. something like that. When did Seinfeld start? I don't remember the 89, year. 89, 90, something like that. Um, so I knew Larry. Um, you know, and Larry, <laughs> Joy and I were talking about this the other day, that when we knew Larry at Catch a Rising Star, he basically would stand around the bar with us and just bemoan all his problems with women and all his dates, <laughs> which then became George storylines, right. all of them, every single one of them. So, uh, but then he moved to L.A. and did Seinfeld very successfully, as we know. And, you know, this is an actually interesting I shouldn't preface it by because maybe it's not interesting. Yeah, but um, <laughs> it's like giving yourself like an intro. people say, "Here's a funny story," yeah, and it, no, let me God. be the judge of that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I started doing Curb if I start uh, 1999, I guess it was when I first or 2000, whatever. You auditioned? You said no, I didn't. No, audition. I didn't think you auditioned. I didn't no. audition. But no, he called you. I had been doing stand up for a really long time and had had several successes along the way, but no break right. success. Uh, you know, I did a, a, a one-night stand HBO special, and yes. I did you know a lot of TV stuff and a lot of things like that. Um, and but you didn't travel around the country like no. you had said to, so people in Ohio would see you or people right. in California, yeah. you know, LA and, and New York. It was I was at a much. I was at a point where it was just kind of like, how many more times do I have to kill before something happens? Right. And you know, you watch people that you know. I never begrudge anybody who's talented, who does really well. I've watched some that aren't so talented that annoy me, but w- <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, Larry, it never bothered me that Larry was making millions of dollars because he was so talented and so funny. Um, but, but so I was, at a, I was at a frustrated point. But my whole theory of my career was always just, you just keep showing up. You just keep showing up. You just keep doing good work. You just keep, you know, just keep just focused on the work, focused on the work. Don't think about, you know, these comedians that we knew that would try to get five minutes together for a development deal. Right. That was never me. That was not us. No, not we at were all. always focused on the work, as were the good ones. I mean, if I look back on, you know, who, people I came up with, your your Chris Rocks and your John Stewarts and your, your Colin Quinns, and focused on the work, always focused on the work. Being a good comedian was always and our writing goal. all the time and right. getting Ray on Romano. stage. Um, I'm sorry, I'm having allergy attacks. So. It's okay. You have tissues. Um, I could throw so, water at um, you. So, the Friars Club. 
I, I, I made my bones there, which was not easy because it was all these comedians there, your Alan Kings, that saw a cute little girl like me and just immediately did not think I was funny. Oh. Immediately did not think I was funny. I had to prove myself to them, which I did. Yes, you did. And I did benefit after benefit. You know, they do a lot of charity stuff, and I would show up and show up, no money, no money, no money. So finally, 1999 is the, is the Comedy Central roast for Jerry Stiller. Ah. Uh. Jean-Pierre Trebeau, who ran the com- uh, Friars Club at that time, time, put my name in. Comedy Central rejected me. They did not want me on the show. I don't know. Too old, too Jewish, too female. I was not their demographic, whatever. They never said I wasn't funny. Jean-Pierre fought for me to get me on. And I think it was because I did all that showing up. Right. And proving myself to them. And he knew I was funny. I had done several roasts. By then, I did Danny Aiello and a couple of other, yeah, other people. Yeah, I remember that, a couple that I went to. Yeah, that, that were on. not televised. Right. But um, I think Comedy Central kind of thought, all right, fine. We'll throw him a bone, put her on. And he really fought for me. We'll put her on, and we could always cut her out. I got laryngitis. I was so nervous. Mm. Literally nothing coming out of my voice. I was taking steroids. I was growing a penis. I was whatever. <laughs> um, I, I killed I went on and I killed and it was a very hard show. The only other person who did well was Jeff Ross. Everybody else died on that roast. Larry happened to have watched that roast and had this character in mind to play Jeff Garland's wife who had a filthy mouth. And I was filthy. It was a roast. That's what you do at a roast. You're blue and filthy. But a roast is not really my rhythm. You know, I'm not a set-up punch kind of girl, and that's what you have to do in those big grand ballrooms. Right, I never was that kind of person. No, but in those big grand ballrooms, that's what you have to do. So I put that set together. I'm capable of it. Mm -hmm. I put that, I had some funny lines. Larry Amaros wrote some funny lines. Um, So anyway, um, I started, my my opening line was to Alan King. I said, Alan, do you ever think you'd live so long that your prostate would be as big as your ego? (laughs) He stole that line from me and put it in his act. Oh, of course. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, but... So Larry saw that, and one day he calls me up, Susie, hi, it's, it's LD. I'm like, oh, hi, Larry. I haven't spoken to you in 10 years. What do you want? <laughs> I have this part on this, this show I'm doing for HBO. I want you to do it. I said, well, send me the script. There's no script. I said, well, what's the word? Don't worry about it. You could do it. But there's no money. There's no mm. money. You're going to have to fly yourself out and put yourself up. And I was like, well, look, Larry, <laughs> I'll do it for scale, for day scale, but you're going to have to fly me out and put me up. I'm not... It's not going to cost me money. So they finally flew me out coach and put me in some piece of shit hotel in Venice, California. And um, the rest is history. We didn't yeah. know. From year to year, we didn't know what it was. It was this we, – we, we were so low budget. We didn't have trailers. We didn't have dressing rooms. We didn't have porta sands either. Mm. We had nothing. We were but just like – we had like, great directors. We had great directors and we had Larry's David brain. David Steinberg. One of my closest friends. Yeah. yeah. And we had Larry's brain. Yes. You know, and the show, I mean, it was just, you know what we also had? We had pure joy. We had so much fun doing that show. Which goes back to what you said at the very beginning about giving the audience joy. Yeah. And then when you were looking for, in your comedy as a kid, was that pure joy that it gave you. And it's right. funny that your best friend is named Joy. My best friend's name is Joy, yes. Joy, that's great. <laughs> Any regrets in, in your, your life uh, up until now? Uh, that I about didn't buy real estate in this neighborhood in the 1980s? Colin Quinn said that too. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, when I used to live across the street, when I lived across the yeah, street here? I do, here? of course. So funny because I, they, like when they were giving the comedian the light before I was going, they'd call me and I'd just <laughs> run across the street and go on stage. Um no, I don't have any real regret. I mean, the only re- I shouldn't say I have personal regrets 
the personal regrets I have are things like if I was ever intentionally or unintentionally unkind to somebody or mm-hmm. hurt somebody's feelings. There are things that, that ring in my ears of things I've said that I shouldn't have said. And But career-wise, do I have regrets? No, I don't have any regrets. I never made, you know, the big money. I never had the big career. But I'm very happy with my career. And, and to have been on Curb for eight seasons, and who knows? There who could knows be what's more. next? You never yeah. know. But to have been on a show that I would actually watch mm. and that I I think, and I, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm biased, but I think is one of the funniest shows that's ever been ever. on television is a, a great, um, I take great pride in that. And I feel extremely, extremely lucky that I got that break, that Larry gave me that break. And, you know, it was a, it was a folie adieu, as they say. Mm-hmm. You know, I gave him what he wanted and he kept writing for me. So it was both of us doing it together. But I feel extremely fortunate because I know people who are are as funny as me, funnier than me, that didn't get that break. Usually there's a reason, it's emotional, it's whatever, but whatever, I was lucky. Yeah. And what about, what, what, what haven't you done that you might still want to do? I mean, you've done theater, you've done film, you've done television. Uh, big television, HBO television. Yeah, you, you do stand up. Is there anything? Well, I'm doing one of the things I always wanted to do now, which is writing a novel. I uh. never, never did that. Writing fiction, it's always something that was in the back of my mind that I wanted to do. Um, so, so that's one thing. Um, I've never done Broadway. Mm. So, but uh, I was at a show last night. You know, eight shows a week. Right. It's exhausting, and, and not eight shows. Matinees, two yeah. Matinees. So it would. I would love to do Broadway, but it would have to be a really funny, great part. What about a one-woman show on a Broadway theater? I have no interest to do a one-woman show. How about a three-woman show? That (laughs) maybe. You know, the one-woman show Joy and Sophia Loren. Yeah, and Judy. Yeah, all right, yeah. Uh, The one-woman show idea, anytime I think of it, and people have approached me about it, anytime I think about the one-woman show thing, I always would rather do stand-up. Yeah, me too. I'd rather do stand-up. I understand that completely. Um, you know, when I, I started stand-up in, like I said, the 70s, quit, and in 1984, I came back, and you were there at the very beginning, and you are there all the time. And you were there at my beginning. You know, and it's so uh, such a pleasure to have you sit, being one of the early recordings for this episode, and I think, I know that young comedians will hear this, the stuff you said and realize that it doesn't happen overnight. Ah. That you have to work really hard and you got to constantly be working. And the work's paid off, and, and uh, I appreciate you being here, Susie Esman. Thank you, Eddie Brill. 